I was um, preparing for this message this week, it struck me once again that we are so blessed. We worship a God who delights in fellowshipping and communicating with his children. Our God, who is very much alive and well, loves to speak to his, spe uh, speak to his people. He speaks primarily through his divinely inspired word, but also through the Holy Spirit. And he speaks dreams and visions into the hearts of his people. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your father's house and your kindred to a land that I will show you. In verse 4, it says, So Abraham went as the Lord has told him. And there is a principle here. When God speaks out, man sets out. And it's a principle that runs right the way through the whole Bible. And this is what happened to Nehemiah. He was in exile in Babylon and a cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes when the news came to him that Jerusalem and her walls and her gates were in ruins. This was the land of his fathers. He was in despair. But God spoke to him and he spoke a vision into his heart. So Nehemiah set out. With the permission of the king, I'm going to turn the right page. With the permission of the king, he returned from exile with both the intention and the resources to rebuild and restore the city walls of Jerusalem. But as always happens, when God speaks out, a man sets out, inevitably, opposition breaks out. And this is the theme of our message today, opposition to God's work. As far as Nehemiah went, the chief antagonists, the ones who despised them and the work the most, were two people called Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. And they were regional governors. And we're going to look at the type of opposition that Nehemiah faced. So if you could look from... Verse 1, we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses, I think. Verse 1 down to verse 14. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. These are not really questions that are being asked here. They're not even rhetorical questions because there's no way they can know what God's plans are. These are taunts. And these guys are mocking them. Nehemiah's response in verse 4 is prayer. And he says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. 
and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all of the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Hallelujah. Yeah. Lord, we just lift this to you this morning, Lord, and we begin this day and this message by acknowledging that you are a great and awesome yeah, that's God. Right. Lord, there is no one who can hold a candle to you. There is no one who even comes close to you. And we acknowledge that and we recognise that. But Lord, I would ask that you would give us eyes to see today. Lord, that you would give me the ability to communicate some of the things that you have shown me. It's not easy to... Try and reveal and bring an illumination to an enemy who doesn't actually want to be seen. But we're going to have an attempt at that today. You see, Nehemiah was confronted with the perfect storm. Opposition from without and opposition from within. On a good note, the wall was built to half its height. But the builders were discouraged and exhausted. They faced the threat of imminent attack and they were mocked and their efforts were being undermined at every turn. Their initial enthusiasm was waning and fear and anxiety had taken hold of the people. And the very thing that the enemy wanted was taking place. Confusion was setting in. In 1 Corinthians 14 it says, Our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches, it says. But confusion is a tactic of the enemy. He uses it to undermine the purposes and plans of God. And if it can muddy the waters of vision, communication, relationships, he's delighted. Nehemiah's vision was coming under the severest of pressure. He responded, first of all, By stationing men 
with swords and with spears and bows in the lowest parts of the wall. But before he did anything else, in verse 14, which is our text for the day, it says, he looked. He didn't have a knee-jerk reaction. He didn't panic with everything that was taking place with before him, this perfect storm. His first reaction was to take a step back like all great leaders do. And he looked and he observed and he assessed what was going on. He looked at the condition of the people. He looked at the condition of the wall and saw the extent of the rubble. But above all else, he was looking and weighing up the enemy in their strength. He knew his enemy well. His focus was always on his great and awesome God, but he understood the ways of the enemy. And that poses questions for us. How well do we understand the ways of our enemy? Is it important to understand the ways of our enemy? Is it wise to even look? Corrie ten Boom, the Dutch evangelist, who along with her family hid many Jews from the Nazis in their home during the Second World War. She said this, It's a poor soldier who doesn't know his enemy. Who doesn't understand the wiles and the ways and his schemes. The Apostle Peter says, Be on the alert. Be sober-minded. Clear-thinking. For your adversary, the devil, roams around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in light of the fact that scripture is divinely inspired, we can feel confident that it is the Holy Spirit who is speaking through Peter. That the Holy Spirit himself is saying, be on the alert, be sober-minded. You have an adversary, you have an enemy. He's out there, and he's roaming around, and he's roaring, and he's saying a lot of stuff, and he's shouting and hollering, making all sorts of noise, but he's looking for something you can undermine, somebody you can put on the back foot, somebody you can quench the spirit within them. Andrew Wilson, in his recent book, Spirit and Sacrament, Speaking about spiritual beings, says this. This might seem too obvious to need mentioning. After all, spiritual beings appear in virtually every book of the Bible. Whether they are called angels, the sons of God, the divine council, archangels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, Satan, the devil, demons, principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil, strongholds, or anything else. When they do, they are not mere metaphors, but existentialist or spiritual struggle, or whatever patronising modernist claptrap might be in vogue at the moment. They are presented as real spiritual beings with genuine agency in the world of space and time. That means our enemy has his own purposes and plans. He goes on to quote C.S. Lewis. He says, as C.S. Lewis expressed so winsomely in the Screwtape Letters, it is tremendously helpful for demons when we disregard their agency altogether and act as if we have grown up believing in them. 
The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Wow. So, what does that mean for us this morning? I feel that God would have us take a leaf out of Nehemiah's book. Take a step back and have a look. Find the courage to do that. To take the instruction of Peter, to be alert, sober-minded, and actually to also heed the warning of a quarry ten boom, who says, let's not be poor soldiers, but let's be good soldiers who have some understanding of what's going on. The desire is not for us to dwell where the enemy is, we dwell where God is, yeah. as did Nehemiah. But there is a necessity for us to have an understanding of the ways of our enemy. So we're going to do that in three ways. Now we're going to look at three things, three characteristics, I'm not going to call them qualities of our enemy. That he is pernicious, he is pervasive, and he is persistent. This is a difficult thing for us to do this morning. Because primarily we're trying to shed light and illumination on an enemy who wants to actually stay hidden. So it needs me, it needs you to help me, and it needs you to help yourself. Because, <laughs> i tell you what it reminded me of. When I was a kid, growing up around here, on a, Friday, a Saturday night, we always used to have winkles and shrimps. You know what winkles are, they're like whelks, yeah? But you used to have a, a pin to try and prize the winkle out of the shell. And this is really what we're doing this morning. We're looking to try and lift the lid, if we can, so that each of us potentially can see something that we've never actually noticed about our enemy before, that will equip us going forward in our lives. Does that make any sense? Yeah. 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 That's good. Nevertheless, I guess this is the caveat. If we are to look at his ways in some detail this morning, it has to be done in this particular context, with this perspective, that he is already a defeated foe. Come on. Great. I was Hallelujah. hoping for that. And there is nothing to be afraid of. Because ultimately, when I get to the end of these notes and the end of the message, that's where we will arrive at. We will arrive at that he is a defeated foe and there is nothing to be afraid of. Come on. In Colossians chapter 2, it says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. Satan is a defeated foe. His finished work on the cross crushed him. Satan is a created being with limited power. God, on the other hand, is eternal and omni. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. And he's all-powerful. The gulf between the two really is infinite. Yet God, in his wisdom, periodically permits Satan to oppose us and be a hindrance to us. And strangely enough, being a hindrance to his own work. Why? <coughs> so that we can 
can both grow in our trust that our Father loves us and that he watches over us and that he is for us and he fights for us. But also this, he wants to teach us how to overcome the devil and share in Christ's victory. So, this first characteristic of the enemy that I want to look at is pernicious. And this is probably the most difficult one of the three. Because it means destructive or dangerous. Especially in a gradual and subtle way. It is the most challenging because he almost hides in open view. We have an enemy who is blatantly roaring and screaming lies at us and looking to undermine us and accuse us, but on the other hand, he's also known as the angel of light. And sometimes he hides in open view. The word itself, pernicious, warns us. It says, be on the alert, be sober-minded, for things might not be as they seem to be. There could be something gradual and subtle that is going on in life that you might be missing. And this is what Nehemiah was facing. Oh no, that's not going either. Things that we think are innocuous, harmless, if left undetected, can be dangerous and destructive. From Genesis 3.1, right the way through to the book of Revelation, we see that the devil is deceitful and devious, that's pernicious. Jesus says that he is a liar, he is the father of all lies, and has come to steal, kill and destroy. And we know that he is the accuser of the brethren, but as I just said, he can also come as the angel of light. And you have this huge scope. This scope is his agency. That's where he works. Pernicious in all areas, deadly and dangerous. For at one end it covers words like malevolent and deadly. At the other end, unfavorable and healthy. Words that we wouldn't necessarily consider nowadays to be destructive and dangerous. And yet he works in those areas. My maternal grandmother had a disease called pernicious anemia. It causes your immune system to attack the cells of your stomach that produces something called the intrinsic factor, which means that your body is unable to absorb the vitamin B12. Some of the symptoms of this condition are extreme tiredness and fatigue, depression, irritability, and the very thing that is meant to be protecting the body, the immune system, immune, immune system is in fact subtly deceived into attacking it. That's why it's called pernicious anemia. It doesn't even come into your life until you're 60 and above. It's gradually and subtly working through the system to break out at some time. And then the immune system, instead of defending and protecting, is actually attacking its own body. And this is what Nehemiah was facing. 
On the one hand, he had Sambalat and his enemies saying, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them. At the upper end, all of the Jews who lived near them came from all directions saying to us ten times, that's excessive, that's gradual, ten times, come, you must return to us. The very people who should have been strengthening the building were in fact undermining them and weakening their morale and their resolve. There's nothing to suggest that these Jews who lived near and about and around were in any way working with the enemy. But it seems that they're concerned for the welfare of the workers. And perhaps their own. After all, maybe they didn't want to get caught up in this escalating situation that was going on. It meant that they were undermining the work of God. It was a hindrance to the work of God. A stumbling block to the work of God. They were saying, come down off the wall. Come down off the wall. Ten times, come down off the wall. Come, come back. That's pernicious. And that's the full scope of pernicious. An enemy in your face, but also working in plain sight. Reminded me of the story of Jesus and Peter. When Jesus said, who do they say I am? And everybody said who they thought, and then Peter piped up and said, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied and said, no man has told you that, but my Father in heaven. He gets the most amazing revelation anybody can possibly get. And then it says this, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then he said this, that Peter took him to one side, I can only imagine he led him by the elbow, and rebuked him. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Far be it from you, Lord, this destiny that you've just told us about is never going to happen to you. That future destruction and danger for you, no, Jesus, come, come, be with us. It's pernicious, it's sudden, it's dangerous. And we all know Jesus' reply. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are a hindrance to me. A stumbling block. And Jesus was addressing the spirit behind Peter. Peter's statement seemed innocuous. Harmless. But in fact... He was looking out for the welfare of Jesus. The same as the people, the Jews, were looking out for the welfare of the people on the wall. But what Jesus is saying is, it's not about my welfare. It's not about the welfare of the people on the wall. What's at stake here? What's at risk? What's facing danger and destruction? And what's paramount are the purposes of my Father in heaven. Both Nehemiah and Jesus saw through these pernicious schemes. 
schemes that were designed to be a stumbling block and hindrances to the purposes of God. This must have been a really sobering time for Peter. One moment you get God giving you this amazing revelation. And before you can even catch your breath, the enemy has caught you on the arm and is deceiving you with his words. And if Peter can be deceived, no wonder he says to us, be sober-minded and be on the love. Be clear-thinking. I wasn't going to put this in, and I just quickly wrote this in this morning. I guess I feel God just dropped something prophetically in me for you to weigh. But I saw a connection rather late in the day between my grandmother's condition by where, I don't know, Jackie would know, I don't know whether it's the biology of the situation, but something has deceived and manipulated the immune system to attack its own body. Something clearly deceived these Jews and manipulated them to try and pull them away from God's work. And Jesus himself saw right way through Peter and recognised the spirit behind him that was manipulating for, his, for Satan's own agenda. And I think for us, I think God would say this, guard against manipulation. Guard against being manipulated. Yeah. And guard against manipulating others. <clears throat> Don't let anybody put their bullets into your gun. Okay? In other words, don't let anybody else put their words into your mouth. Don't be somebody else's mouthpiece in any situation because it comes out of the shadows. And God is not a God of the shadows. He's a God of light. So guard yourselves and be alert and be sober-minded for this. In any situation in life, do not... Let somebody else put their bullets into your gun. I guess, for me, today's message is really all about how to grow in our spiritual discernment. The ability, if you like, to see the gradual and the subtle workings of the enemy. In Corinthians, it says that we have the mind of Christ. So this isn't difficult for us. And that because of that, we can discern spiritual things. Oh boy, I would really encourage you guys, really encourage you to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit because He is the one who brings illumination and light and revelation into all things. Yeah. Obviously, read the word of truth. But I say we also have to take a, a as I said, a leap out of Nehemiah's book and be prepared to take a step back and take a look at our lives and assess and ask the question, am I missing anything? Are there perhaps, I don't know, relationships that may not be as harmly, harm, harmless and as innocuous as I first thought? After all, scripture does say bad company corrupts good morals. Are there perhaps things that I post, material that I post, or even observe on social media. This seem quite innocuous. Harmless to me, 
That means harmless to me. But on reflection, may they be dangerous to the vision and dreams that God has spoken into your life. You know, when God does speak a vision into our, into our hearts and dreams into our hearts, at some point, we have to share them. And when a God-given vision is shared, it is contagious. We know, don't we, that a vision is caught and not taught. Nehemiah shared his vision with the people. Not the most inspiring of open sentences, I must say. He began with this. You see the trouble we're in? <laughs> you see the trouble we're in? He goes on to say how Jerusalem lies in ruin with its gates burned. But then he says this. Come, come. Let us build together. Let us build the walls of Jerusalem together. And then I told them of God's hand upon me for good. And they said, let us rise up and build. They caught it and took ownership of the vision for the things of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. It's contagious. A vision is contagious. Whatever dreams God has put in your hearts, when you come at the end of the month on the 30th, Come and share those visions yeah. and come and share those dreams because they are contagious and they will shape us. They will all find a place in the vision of this church. So stir them over the next couple of weeks in yourself. Christian hope is contagious if shared. Yeah. It says this, despite my circumstances, even though it feels like I'm in the middle of a perfect storm, pressed in on all sides, I choose to look beyond my circumstances to a time when my God will break in and change everything. And he will change everything for the better. And this hope is not based on wishful thinking. It is not based on what goes around comes around, some sort of strange positive karma or faith. No, it's based on the character and the promises of God. He is a God who cannot lie. He is a God who says he is for us and not against us. And even when it doesn't look like it, church, our cup is always full. He is the anchor to our souls. Come on. That's the first characteristic, the most difficult one to get out of the way. He is per pernicious, dangerous, but especially in gradual and subtle ways. The second characteristic that we are looking at is that he is pervasive, widespread, rampant like a pandemic, an endemic. He's infecting the whole world with his ways. He has infected the whole world with his ways. He says this, that the God of this world blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of Jesus Christ. We were all in that place once. Yeah. And there might be somebody here this morning, and I've got some good news for you. Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to open the eyes of the blind. So if that's you this morning, 
and you don't know Jesus and you're wondering what on earth is this fellow talking about, trust me, if you don't know him, your eyes have been blinded. But we would be more than happy at some point after this message to get alongside you and show you and open your eyes so you can see Jesus. The opposite to Christian hope is dread. That's based on the expectations that things are going to get worse. We're doomed, Mr. Mary. The cup half empty. A breeding ground for fear and anxiety. And this is what was happening with the people on the wall. Fear and anxiety and dread were spreading like wildfire. All the way around the walls. All of those people Charles brought to us last week. Those families and clan. Fear and anxiety. As they were facing this opposition. Was just breaking out. My sister-in-law lives in California. Just outside of LA. Up in the hills. And every year they deal with this. When the fires break out and the winds pick up and just sweep and destroy everything in their path. This is what fear and what anxiety does in our life and dread does in our life. And far too many Christians live in this place of dread because they are still yet to discover just how great and awesome their God is. But you will. You will. Nehemiah's problem was that the constant mocking and taunts were taking place and on the builders. Things like, what are these people Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? This wall is never going to be strong. The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. And the devil will always point out the rubble in our lives. He always will. And he will go to great lengths to try and convince us that we will never get past it. That there is no future. The rubble in your life is just too big. And it's too much. That broken childhood. That failed marriage. The abuse. The rejection. The mistakes that we've made. The mistakes that we still make. He bombards us with his taunts. Accusing the brethren. Creating fear and anxiety for the future. Saying this. You'll never get past this rubble. You will never finish building this wall. He fools us into believing that he knows the future. He has a He knows nothing about your future. Look at you. Do you know how splendid you look? Honestly, do you know how splendid you look? You're already built to half your height. And those of us who are a tad older, we might be three quarters built. You still have life in you. You are still breathing. How on earth did you arrive to where you are today, half built, splendid, looking wonderful with all of this rubble? How on earth did you do it? How did you manage it? I'll tell you the promise for you, and the promise for me is this. It is grace that has brought you safely thus far. Come on. It is grace that has brought you safe, 
safely thus far. And it is grace that will lead you home. Your future is absolutely assured. But it goes beyond that. Well, it can't go beyond that, but within that. There is a promise of this, that if we cooperate with this grace, if we work with this grace, that he will come and clear away the rubble of our lives. And he will come and heal you and restore you. Thank you, Lord. We have the helper. We have the Holy Spirit who has been sent back to guide us, watch over us, make sure that we all get over the line regardless of the rubble. But the promise is, if we go to him with our rubble, he'll say, I'm going to get rid of all of this. Take some courage to do. Psalm 118 verse 6 says this, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. Yeah, come on. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Should we say it together? With some faith. <laughs> the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. This last characteristic of, of the opposition to our lives is this. He is persistent. He's always looking for opportunities to keep opposing us. We have to settle it within ourselves, Christian, that the state of affairs or the position of a Christian is one of warfare. This is a mindset that we have to arrive at. It's so helpful when you do because you, once, you, once you've settled it within yourself, it finds its place in your life and you just get on with life. Our spirit wars against our flesh. We are to resist the ways of the world even though we are in it. And we know that we do not fight against flesh and blood. We are at war and our enemy is persistent. When the first wave of exiles returned something like 60 or 70 years beforehand under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, and they had with them also the prophets Zechariah and Haggai, They faced opposition to the building of the altar and the laying of the foundation of the temple. When the second wave of exiles returned from Babylon with Ezra, they faced opposition. And when Nehemiah returned with the third wave of exiles, he faced initially Sambalat and Tobiah, then it was Sambalat, Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, then it was Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. He's persistent. And again, it pops up again in chapter 6 and somewhere else in the story of, of Nehemiah. When God speaks out, man sets out, opposition breaks out. And we have to settle that. Ultimately, when weighing up the enemy, as Nehemiah would have done and as we've done this morning, It leads us to a question. What does he want? What is he after? Might as well know. Could you turn back a couple of chapters, please, to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19 to 20.
is directly after Nehemiah's giving his vision statement to the people. You see the trouble in him, come, let us build together. Let's restore the gates and the walls together. Directly on the back of that, in verse 19, it says this. Then Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They heard of his vision. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, it says in verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, no right or claim in Jerusalem. He saw right through them the way that Jesus saw right through Peter and saw the enemy behind Peter. Nehemiah sees right through them and he knows what it is thereafter. He said the city didn't belong to them. They had no jurisdiction there. They had no claim, neither in religious things, nor civil things, nor on God's sacred city. It doesn't matter what plans you have been hatching for the future, however you feel you might divide all of this up among yourselves, you have no portion, you have no right, and you have no claim on Jerusalem. It is the dwelling place of God, and it belongs to Him and His people. He saw the hidden agenda. Be alert. Watch out for hidden agendas, church. We have an enemy who disguises himself in light. They had no portion, no right, or claim on God's holy city. In John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus and his disciples have just finished breaking bread and Jesus is speaking to them. All of a sudden he stops and he says this, the ruler of this world is coming. That's Satan, the devil. But he has no claim on me. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. He has no portion. He has no rights on me. He has no jurisdiction over me, Jesus said. And church, Satan has no portion, no right, no claim on you. We sang earlier that death has no claim on us. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The fullness now of God now dwells in you, the Christian. And the enemy wants to make a claim on your life. He wants a portion of your life. He wants to speak his jurisdiction over your life. But he hasn't got it. It's the kingdom of God, his rule and reign that has jurisdiction over our lives now. Not Satan. He has no claim over you. In Romans 8.33, Paul says, Who is a charge against God's elect? Ask the question when you're feeling pressured and you have a sense that the enemy is coming against you. Stand there and say, Who has a charge against me then? For it's God who justifies. 
You have no portion, you have no rights, you have no claim on me. Christ in his life, death and resurrection has satisfied the requirements of the law. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah! Yeah, come on. Satan has no portion, no right or claim on you. That's right. But it's even better. We have no portion, no right or claim on us. For we have been redeemed. We have been purchased at a price. We are no longer our own. We belong to somebody else. We don't have any rights or claims or portions on our own life. We belong to Christ. So the next time Satan comes knocking on your door, Satan, don't talk to me, go talk to the owner. <laughs> and you know the reply he will get when he goes to accuse you before God. Jesus says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are seated in heavenly places. We are citizens of heaven and ambassadors of the kingdom. And we are joint heirs with Christ. That means the kingdom belongs to us. Mm -hmm. Have you ever considered that? But you don't just work for the kingdom and you don't just live in the kingdom, but it belongs to you. Yeah. God wants those who take ownership, your joint heirs with Christ. When the little children came to Jesus and the disciples tried to keep them away, Jesus said, no, no, let them come. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Yeah. The kingdom of heaven belongs to us. Nehemiah understood this. In chapter 1, when you see him break and he confesses and he repents, he takes hold of the ownership of the things of the kingdom of God. He's not just working for God. He's not just a citizen. He's actually taken ownership. God's kingdom is his kingdom. Not that he's king, but I think you understand what I mean. <coughs> Drawings were close now. I don't hear you, don't the band come back up. We're back to the beginning again. Back to where I said we would arrive at inevitably anyway. In verse 14, Nehemiah said, I looked. He weighed up the enemy. But unlike the builders on the wall who saw their enemy in relation to themselves which caused fear and anxiety Nehemiah saw the enemy in relation to his God and they came up so short they were found wanting well we have weighed up our enemy and I can't speak for you guys but uh, to my mind in comparison to Jesus our God he comes up woefully sure. A defeated foe. So it goes on to say, verse 14, So I arose, I looked, weighed it all up, I arose and said to the nobles, 
and to the officials and to the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. I can only imagine it's a big dismissive sweep of the arm. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and homes. He knew that his God was fighting for him. In Romans 16.20 it says this, which is an encouragement for us on our daily walk. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. So let's encourage one another with these truths. Let's be sober-minded and be alert and, and balance things in their lives the way they need to be balanced. Let's ask the Lord to grant us the ability to grow in discernment. It says in Proverbs chapter 2, doesn't it? Gain knowledge, get understanding of that knowledge and then apply wisdom to those things that you have understood. I would encourage us all to seek knowledge, understanding and wisdom. Let's strengthen and establish one another. Let's grow in our spiritual discernment, as I said, and let's be contagious.